Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Patrick Scahill in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Batteries are everywhere, from the toys our children play with to the phone you might be using to listen to us today. We even popped a battery in a helicopter that recently flew over the surface of Mars. But what's behind the silent tech that's powering our lives? Today, we're exploring batteries, our reliance on them, and what the future might hold for this technology. You can join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Our guests today are Ivan Penn, energy correspondent for The New York Times, and Andre Taylor, associate professor in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at NYU Tandon School of Engineering. And Ivan, today we'll start uh, with you. And I'd like to begin by talking about the way long-lasting rechargeable batteries are getting more and more important in our lives. Um, I don't have to tell anyone listening to the show that batteries today are everywhere. Ivan? That's right. Uh, of course, uh, you know, we, we, we began in, in the part of the space dealing with, you know, our, our cell phones and uh, things that, uh, you know, we, we use almost every day now uh, with lithium ion batteries. Uh, but of course, uh, Elon Musk popularized uh, electric vehicles uh, today. Um, it's not a new technology. But uh, we have focused on lithium ion as the, the source, the power source uh, for electric vehicles. And now we're in this energy transition that's being pushed to move us from uh, fossil fuels to, uh, to electric vehicles. So they're playing a substantial role. President uh, Biden recently highlighted electric vehicles and the need for charging stations in uh, his infrastructure package. Um, Ivan, tell us a little bit more about what the president says he'd like to see there. Yes. He, he, so in order to make this all work, um, the president realized that we needed to have more uh, charging infrastructure. Um, if you're going to convince people that electric vehicles are, are uh, a reliable source for them to use, uh, you've got to give them the ability to charge their cars. And so what he wants to do is to add thousands, tens of thousands of chargers across the country uh, to help sort of uh, facilitate this growth in uh, electric vehicles. Typically right now, majority of the people who've been still probably call them early adopters, uh, charge at home. But you're beginning to see more and more chargers uh, everywhere from, you know, the, the grocery store parking lots, the, the mall parking lots. Uh, you're seeing them, you know, you see them at, at Walmart. You see them uh, at uh, Ikea, in Ikea parking lots. You, so you're, they're, they're proliferating. Uh, but the question is, uh, can you convince the average person 
that there is enough ability if I live in an apartment, if I um, and and there aren't chargers in my apartment building, uh, if I uh, am a renter um, in any type of housing situation, what do I do if there's no no charger there? So the president, in trying to address that, uh, has been pushing for thousands of chargers around the country. And getting those charging stations online, um, Ivan, as you're saying, is going to be essential if the U.S. wants to meet its carbon reduction goals because consumers do want to have the confidence that they can find a spot to to plug these batteries in to charge them. Uh, I know that has been an issue here in Connecticut. Uh, the state has a, a pretty ambitious goal of putting about 125,000 uh, EVs on the road by 2025. We have less than 20,000 registered EVs in the state um, right now. And, and part of that, according to state officials, is... Uh, this range anxiety, this worry that, you know, if I go out, if I take my car out, I'm not going to be able to find a spot to plug the battery into. That's right. So um, you typically, uh, you know, you can get uh, 400 miles or in some cases more off of your your gasoline vehicle. And it's only been in the last year or so, uh, maybe a couple years that we've started to really see electric vehicles that can uh, go the the 250, 300 plus miles. And those have been, again, typically a Tesla. Uh, you know, early on, you were having these electric vehicles uh, that were getting, you know, 40 miles a, a charge. Um, and that created this whole, as you described, uh, anxiety, range anxiety. Will I be able to get to my destination. And quite honestly, even people I have spoken to in the last uh, several weeks who even have Teslas um, mm-hmm. and, and fairly new ones uh, still have that concern. If I go, um, they'll say, uh, I'm based here in California. If I go from from San Diego to, San, to, to visit family in San Francisco, you know, and and especially in a more rural area, sort of outside of the Bay Area, you know, will I be able to find a charger to get back home? Um, the, these are these have been real concerns for people. And so, if you have more chargers, and particularly fast chargers that can charge uh, in in less than an hour, uh, as opposed to in some cases, you know, it could be three, four, or even five hours to charge you know, that helps to relieve the anxiety. But it's not like the less than 10 minute uh, moment that you will spend uh, at a gasoline station. Mm. So we're going to be talking a bit about uh, maybe some of the future evolution of batteries uh, as we go further on uh, today. But Andre, I want to turn to you and and maybe we'll just go do a quick kind of chemistry 101 here. Um, Maybe you can talk me through in really basic terms what exactly is a battery? Uh, What's sort of the basic science here about how these work? Sure. Yeah. So the uh, um, battery is basically made of three major components. You have your anode, your separator, and your cathode. So your anode, that's your negative side. That's where your electrons flow out. Uh, your separator is what separates the two uh, sides apart. And you have an electrolyte uh, that's that's uh, used in between. And then your cathode, uh, which is your positive side, this is where your electrons typically flow in. And and so the the idea with the battery, uh, it's been around for for a while. And I guess the the term the terms for batteries 
Prez was first coined uh, by Benjamin Franklin in 1749. And uh, he coined the term. And, and of course, back then they used the uh, term loosely for battery. So anytime you had a component of systems that worked together that did the same thing. So you could have a battery of ammunition or a battery of artillery, those sorts of things. Uh, he took a group of capacitors and called it a battery. And so that's where the term uh, formed in terms of uh, the formation of a battery. And then if you move forward in time to 1780, uh, Luigi Galvani, he was dissecting a frog and uh, had a brass hook in one of the in, in the frog and when he was using the iron scalpel he noticed that the leg was twitching and he thought that this was energy that was built up into the leg and uh, it took his assistant alessandra volta that he actually recognized that it's because of the two different metals making the connection and so later on alessandra volta he uh, published a paper in 1791 uh, went on to create what they call the volta pile which is uh, this uh, series of zinc and copper interacting systems, which created a uh, you know battery type of system, and so this is a um, you know, the onset of the battery. And so yeah, then we move fast forward to the uh, to the current times of, of batteries now. And one of the major batteries uh, now is the lithium ion battery. So just sort of briefly explain what that is. Sure. So lithium ion battery. It's uh, so batteries are typically. Uh, named by the uh, mobile ion. So in this case, so lithium, lithium is a mobile ion that shuttles across. And for, for people that are that are interested in the battery, lithium ion battery technology, uh, the 2019 Nobel Prize in Chemistry was given out to uh, John Goodenough, Stanley Whittingham, and, and Akira uh, Yoshino uh, for their invention of the battery in 1985. And the lithium ion battery was... Uh, um, commercialized by Sony in 1991. So essentially they were looking for a way, and this was during the oil embargo and, and, and the challenges there, they're looking for a way of having some sort of high energy density battery system that, that would work better. And, you know, of course there was lots of trials, lots of attempts and people were scanning the periodic table, looking for the best elements. And, and it turns out that lithium works out really well because it's, you know, number three. So it's very, very, it's the lightest of the, of the metals, but then also um, has a higher um, power, has a higher energy density than, than other batteries as well. And so, Ivan, maybe describe the way that the lithium-ion battery has become a populari- popularized in, in technology today. You were describing Elon Musk and the work he's been doing with electric vehicles, but um, I'm sure it goes beyond just electric cars. Uh, a- absolutely. So. Uh, batteries uh, and well, and energy storage is sort of viewed, uh, pardon the cliche, but sort of the holy grail uh, in the energy sector. Um, the idea of being able to to uh, to store the electricity, uh, you know, is a key component to how we we move the electric grid to um, to the future. So, if you're the, you mentioned the president. Uh, working to decarbonize the energy sector. Obviously, part of the goal is to do that with, uh, with more solar power, uh, wind power. But these function best when the, the sun is shining. Obviously, solar doesn't work at all with no sun. Um, uh, and, and the wind turbines depend on wind. So it, it, in those times when those sources uh, aren't generating, 
You know, you need something to keep uh, keep powering the system. And so if you can uh, use storage of some sort to capture excess solar, excess wind uh, in the times they are generating, then that becomes an, another element to keep the system reliable. Storage can be the, the lithium ion battery, but then there's a, you know, there's a century old technology that we've been using in storage uh, hydro uh, power uh, plants. They have been sort of a critical piece. Um, hydro pump storage uh, has allowed us to store electricity. So it's not just a battery. It could be uh, a hydro power uh, pumped hydro plant. Uh, it could be um, other other technologies beyond lithium um, that help us to store electricity for for the grid. Uh, so not only EVs, but even uh, but even for uh, the the power we use for our homes. Well, and I understand, Ivan, out in California where where you are, um, that state has actually relied on battery power in the past, uh, coming from individual homes to help deal with some grid stress that um, you've seen out there in recent uh, recent years. That's right. Um, of course, last summer we had the first uh, blackouts since the 2000-2001 uh, energy crisis uh, related specifically to um, uh, issues with the grid. Uh, of course, they've had the, the they've cut people's power in the midst of wildfires, but but this was blackouts because they were having issues with the electric grid what happened in that case was you have uh, rooftop solar on individual homes and, and businesses and batteries at those, uh, at those locations that allowed uh, the grid operator to be able to harness that power uh, and supplement uh, the, the lack of, of uh, electricity that was being generated by the wholesale power producers and the utilities uh, with uh, this battery that was uh, in someone's home or a a, a system of batteries uh, at a business. Uh, this is uh, a lot of the future of, of this technology. We're going to take a quick break here. This is uh, Connecticut Public Radio and where we live. I'm Patrick Scahill in for Lucy Nalpothanchel. You can join our conversation on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Our guests today are Ivan Penn, energy correspondent for The New York Times, and Andre Taylor, an associate professor in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at NYU Tandon School of Engineering. We'll be back after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. 
ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Patrick Scahill in for Lucy Nalbethanchel. Lithium-ion batteries have become ubiquitous in the world of technology, powering a computing revolution that's given us cell phones and electric cars. But the ways we get the raw materials for our batteries have raised many questions. Joining me to talk this through is Ivan Penn. He's energy correspondent for The New York Times. And Andre Taylor, associate professor in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at NYU Tandon School of Engineering. Uh, Andre, we spoke last segment about uh, some of the components that go inside a lithium-ion battery. Uh, one of those components, I understand, is is cobalt. So again, a quick chemistry 101 for me here. Uh, tell me what cobalt is and why it's uh, an important part of uh, lithium-ion batteries. Thank you. Yeah, so cobalt is uh, an important component for batteries, so it's used in the uh, cathode part of the material. But uh, of course, there's some challenges with cobalt uh, because of the scarcity and then also on, on how it's how it's obtained. And so people are looking for other type of alternative cathode materials. Uh, of course, you don't want to have a trade-off in terms of the capacity because, of course, with the battery, the higher the capacity, then the more the battery is going to operate. Uh, you also want to have a material that's not going to have any memory and memory, meaning that if you discharge the material, then it's going to remember it. The discharge state and then it's not going to recharge so it's going to lose capacity in that way so you want something that is going to be able to operate uh you know cycle you know time and time again so you have a long long durability so now people are looking at other types of uh um, materials for the cathode so lmo which is lithium manganese oxide that's a very uh popular uh system that people are studying and actually my group is doing some work on on LMO uh, right now. Um, there's also other types of cathodes as well, uh, lithium iron oxides uh, that says receive some popularity. And again, there's there's different challenges for each of those because for batteries in your cathode, your lithium ion migrates and they call it the rocking chair mechanism. So your lithium ions migrate from your anode to your cathode. And so as they migrate from one to the other, they intercalate into that cathode material. And so then there's um, issues with uh, expansion and contraction and how, how well that material can can be cycled. One other uh, issue that uh, I know I've been aware of, uh, Andre, as someone who, who knows virtually nothing about batteries except what I'm learning today, is that um, lithium-ion batteries can, in rare cases, uh, catch fire um, if something happens inside the battery. So I, I, my understanding is cobalt can, can maybe mitigate some of that, and, and that's why it's become a, a popular component of batteries? Yeah. So, so back back when uh, I guess when uh, Stanley Whittingham uh, proposed the uh, the battery layout and 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 Akira and and John Goodenough, they were they were working on this. So John Goodenough uh, um, introduced the the idea of using the cobalt uh, in for batteries, and that's uh, one of the things that said, okay, wow, these these batteries can actually be stable, and 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 we don't have to worry about the fire because, of course, <laughs> having an unstable system and one that's that, that falls out of control is, is, is not good. So, um, so that's one of the components of it, which made it, uh, such a conventional, 
uh, material. But then again, there's issues with cobalt, um, you know, in, in terms of how it's obtained, there's only a few limited places that you can get cobalt. And, and then again, it's the cost. So cost has a, has a very big uh, function in that as well. Mm. Um, so Ivan, let's turn to you um, and maybe we can um, start by talking a bit about cobalt and then we'll talk about lithium mining and how we get lithium. But um, uh, Andre mentioned there are only a few spots in the world where we can get uh, cobalt. So walk us through that process. How is this element obtained? So uh, one of our major sources of cobalt uh, is in the Congo and in Africa. And so you end up with uh, a number of concerns in that regard that uh, in both environmental uh, as well as um, just the, the human impact of, of the mining. Um, so the concerns uh, become really, really significant. Uh, sort of the classic um, uh, environmental justice uh, kinds of concerns. Uh, and, and so there have been a, a great deal of efforts, uh, as Andre is mentioning, uh, and even at our national labs, to reduce the amount of cobalt uh, that gets used. The, the government's goal has been, the federal government's goal has been to get that down to, to 5% or less um, or even to to try to eliminate it altogether because of those environmental and and environmental justice uh, kinds of concerns. Well, and some of those concerns were outlined uh, in a in an excellent um, Washington uh, Post story, which um, chronicled some of the work that um, so-called artisanal miners were doing uh, in the Congo. And these are essentially miners, Ivan, who are going in using hand tools um, into tunnels they've dug themselves uh, to to get this element out, uh, often at great risk to themselves, um, and in some cases, uh, using child labor as well. That, that's right. And, and, but, but not only are we talking about the concern about, about cobalt, but uh, about an actual lithium itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the, the, the various elements that are going into the battery uh, are of concern. Lithium in particular, uh, you know, majority of it right now comes from South America and Australia. And some of the mining techniques that are used, uh, they have serious environmental concerns. Um, some are these large evaporation ponds. Uh, so they're, they're using large amounts of water. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, all the processing right now is uh, virtually done in China. So there's, there's, um, and, 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 and concern about, uh, you know, I mean, you also have some of the economic concerns that the government is, is trying to deal with, but those kinds of environmental concerns, uh, in, in some cases, you know, traditional mining, blowing up a mountain, uh, you know, they, these are all, um, you know, things you have to weigh, even in this, transition to what we're calling clean energy. And I know, Ivan, you've uh, done work on investigating some of the major projects that are under development uh, currently in the United States. Uh, There's the Lithium Americas uh, project in Nevada that was uh, greenlit in the last days of the administration of President Donald Trump. Um, So maybe tell us a little bit more about about that site, what mining would and and what mining would look like uh, over there. So, so we have multiple uh, sites that have potential for lithium 
uh, uh, mining and, and development here in the United States. Um, in the case of Lithium Americas, uh, part of the concern was the fact that, uh, you know, some of the traditional mining um, and the again, blowing up a mountain, uh, as one person said, uh, you know, is not uh, in many people's estimation, not considered, you know, an environmentally friendly way of doing things. Uh, but it's not the only technique that's being looked at here in the United States. Um, there's multiple uh, ways of extracting lithium. Uh, one, as we reported, talked about the use of a technology uh, where you take it from the, uh, the brine of geothermal um, that you find uh, in Southern California, for example, uh, these are basically uh, tiny volcanoes um, and they're generally used, the, tech, the, the geothermal is generally used in that area to, to power power plants. But the, the, the salty water uh, also contains a lot of minerals, uh, lithium being one, and you can extract it without blowing up a mountain. Um, some of these areas are also on native lands. Um, there's concern about the water. Um, there's, uh, and so you, you have a lot of issues, uh, even within the United States in, in terms of mining, about protecting the environment protecting uh, the drinking water. Uh, so can you use more of the technology of taking it from, uh, from something like geothermal to, uh, th that provides a, a, a potentially safer way of um, uh, extracting the, the mineral? Andre, I wonder if you can talk about, as a researcher, how you think about the way materials are sourced um, and, and the way that's factoring into how engineers and how scientists are, are thinking about the future of batteries. Yeah, thanks. So uh, we, we definitely think about how materials are sourced and, and uh, my research group, my colleagues, research groups, uh, we, we, we are very concerned about, you know, the technologies that we have and how that affects the environment. Um, in, in terms of sourcing of materials, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because with lithium ion uh, batteries and extraction. So, so as uh, Ivan mentioned, um, where does that lithium come from? And so now there's pressure in the United States. So most of the lithium comes from, as, as Ivan mentioned, either Australia or from, from Colombia, specifically Bolivia. And, and so they, they take this uh, in, in, in South America, they take this uh, lithium, they pump it out and it, you know, sits out on these huge lakes and uh, it, you know, just evaporates from the sun. And so, and then they extract the lithium. Uh, and of course, in Nevada, there's there's lithium that's down in the groundwater. But then when you talk about issues like the Salton Lake, then what does this mean? Okay, so they can harvest energy, they can take the geothermal energy, they can generate electricity from that method. But at the same time, if I'm going to pump out this brine solution, then when I extract the lithium, what do I do with the wastewater that's left over from that process? So those are things that we think about. And, and so the Department of Energy has been running a number of contests and, and calls for, for researchers to come together to try to think of ways creatively to extract lithium and, and figure out ways that make the most sense. And so that's something that definitely my, my group um, works on and focuses in on. 
And one small point that I wanted to mention from, from the previous section, when you mentioned uh, decarbonization, uh, at NYU, we have a center for decarbonization. Uh, and this is the, uh, it's called DC Muse. It's the Center for Decarbonizing Chemical Manufacturing Using Sustainable Electricity. So this kind of couples in with the grid parity. And in this case, our centers focus on the chemical industry, which uh, focuses in on chemical processes. And we're looking at ways on how you can decarbonize that and look for methods to do that. So this is NYU plus several other universities. And we have support from the Sloan Foundation to put that together. Um, and so these are things that we definitely, um, as researchers, are concerned about in terms of how do we make our technology and how do we use that technology for the good without having an overall negative effect on the environment. And what about the question, Andre, of, of reusing the technology that we've already made? Um, what are scientists thinking about when it comes to recycling lithium-ion batteries and the components that go into them? Yeah, so for recycling, that's an interesting challenge because recycling and then how do you take that and what's, what's the... Uh, you know, I guess, what's the window of the recycling that you could say? So uh, in battery technology, uh, for example, for the older Prius cars and, and some of the hybrid cars, those use nickel metal hydride. Um, and so for nickel metal hydride, for those batteries that are, that are coming to the end of their life, there's a huge reservoir that's building up. But of course, it's going to peak because now, you know, hybrid cars, you're using lithium battery technologies now. So in terms of recycling, then what does that recycle stream look like? And then how do you extract those materials? And that's, that's a complicated uh, challenge because most of the time we're used to extracting things, extracting things from mining, putting it together and putting it in. But then how do you take a component, existing component, and then extract those materials out of it? And that's, that's a part that scientists are working on and, and thinking about um, in, in, in terms of how to do that. Our group, my research group focuses on the looking at the uh, improving the batteries, improving the battery architectures. Uh, we haven't focused on recycling lately. And, and Ivan, I, I know you've looked into this issue a little bit in terms of your reporting. And I mean, I can just say from personal experience, if, if I don't have a, a spot to recycle something, uh, I, I'll tend to just maybe keep it in my house. Uh, if it's, if it's you know, say, uh, paint or, or something that I know is hazardous that shouldn't go in my trash bin. Um, until I can find a spot to put it. And I've done this with, with lithium-ion batteries. I mean, I have old uh, batteries or old laptops that are just kind of sitting in my closet. So I'd imagine a certain degree of a political pressure or, or leader, leadership will be needed here, Ivan, to um, sort of incentivize cities and towns to put out recycling spots for this stuff. Yeah, the, this is, you know, always the, the, the question. Uh, we develop a technology um, and we, on the back end, uh, start trying to figure out what we're going to do with it after we we decommission it. Uh, you know, the the there's always that debate uh, about uh, nuclear power. Um, we we developed the plants, but we we didn't spend time figuring out what we were going to do with the spent fuel rods. And so the question also came up: Well, if we're going to to dramatically increase the use of lithium ion batteries, what are we going to do in terms of uh, with all those batteries that are that are left over? And you have some companies that uh, are emerging uh, that are recycling the, the batteries. Um, and then some folks are saying, well, you know, we talk about mining. 
why don't we focus on recycling uh, some of those minerals uh, from the from the batteries? But when you consider the demand that we're talking about in the shift uh, from uh, from fossil fuel, from gasoline vehicles to electric vehicles, you're talking about such a large amount of lithium that's going to be needed, a large amount of minerals that's going to be needed, uh, that you're not going to be able to get all of that from just simply from recycling um, at, at this stage. And and so part of the, the, the issue is that, you know, I mean, just to, to be able to to meet the goals, you know, how we handle all of that. But it, it's it's unfortunately oftentimes a second thought about what we do with all the stuff that we develop. Mm. Well, and I know you've spoken with a, a lot of auto industry leaders. So what are you hearing from them in terms of, you know, how much consideration they're giving to the ethical, ethical concerns here around things like material sourcing as they're ramping up electric vehicle production? I mean, are they paying attention to to where the components for these batteries are coming from? Well, there there's a obviously a great deal of of concern when you have the amount of pressure that's being applied around the world to decarbonize the you know the auto industry is increasingly responding to that with some of the automakers you know saying that they're going to phase out gasoline vehicles um, uh, over the next uh, decade or so um, and and of course the sourcing uh, becomes a critical issue in that um, the some of the folks at the Salton Sea, the developing the the lithium there uh, from that uh, geothermal, they have reached agreements with with automakers to get the their their lithium or at least some of their lithium uh, from that source because of the concern about uh, about what types of mining techniques are being used. Um, so I mean, it's in people's minds, absolutely. Um, but you know, there's a trade-off here. How much there are environmental concerns over most technologies that we use. It's just that some are much cleaner than than others. And so, uh, you know, I mean, it's making the choice about which one you're going to pursue. Uh, coming up in the next segment, we're going to be talking a bit about the future of batteries and some sort of uh, alternative uh, types of batteries that are out there. That's Ivan Penn. He's energy correspondent for The New York Times. We're going to take a quick break here. We're also speaking with Andre Taylor, associate professor in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at NYU Tandon School of Engineering. I'm Patrick Scahill in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll take a break and be back. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Patrick Scahill in for Lucy Nopithanchel. Today we're talking about batteries. We've spent time exploring how they're made and how they're used. Now we'll look at what might be next for batteries and some of the cutting edge ideas for how they're made. Joining us today is Ivan Penn, energy correspondent for the New York Times, and Andre Taylor. He's associate professor in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at NYU Tandon School of Engineering. And you can join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. 
So, Andre, I want to talk to you a bit about sodium ion batteries. Uh, so explain uh, what these are and um, some of the work you're doing on them. Sure. So sodium ion batteries, so sodium is the mobile ion as, as opposed to lithium ion batteries where lithium is shuttling back and forth. So in the case for sodium batteries, you have the sodium that's migrating from your anode between your anode and your cathode. And what makes sodium ion batteries attractive is that they don't have as high of an energy density as lithium ion batteries because sodium metal is, is, is heavier if you look on the periodic table. But in terms of cost, sodium is very, very abundant, right? You can take sodium, you can harvest it from the ocean and, and, and all sorts of uh, locations. And so uh, for electric vehicles, maybe lithium batteries is the better technology because you have a higher energy density, um, you know, gravimetric energy density for, for mass. But for sodium, if you could have a very stable battery that's low cost, now you can talk about something that can address some of this grid parity that we were talking about uh, earlier with, with the grid. And so um, people are looking at sodium battery chemistries for that. And my group, we uh, published a paper in Anguante Chemie International uh, where we used asphalt. And so using asphalt, which is, if you think of asphalt, that's a pretty much, that's a waste material that's used from from a petrochemical refining. And so they take the asphalt and they put it in roads and things like that because it's very, very cheap. We actually took asphalt because graphitic carbon in, uh, in sodium batteries are not very stable, whereas uh, you, need, you need a new material for the anode. So in this case, we're using uh, asphalt, which, which works really, really well, surprisingly. And so now you're taking a material that's dirt cheap, that's considered a waste material that's put in roads. And now we're saying, hey, this material can actually be used for uh, for renewable energy storage for sodium battery chemistries. You had mentioned uh, sodium ion batteries possibly, possibly being one avenue in the future that could help uh, achieve better grid parity. I, I wonder if you can maybe talk a little bit more about that and, and some specific examples that, that you could see in the future where sodium ion batteries could, could help close that gap. Sure. So sodium ion batteries, uh, so uh, as Ivan mentioned, um, there, there are different entities, I guess, that are contributing to the grid. And, and so there's, there's a lot of, not only like for electric vehicle range anxiety, but there's also uh, grid anxiety, because if you have a lot of uh, variable renewable energy that's connecting to the grid, then that can, that can cause instability. So, um, so when we go from this um, distributed energy type of landscape, where you can have these entities. So in, in terms of like a stable grid, you can have these stable nodes. So you can have electricity generation and storage all in the same node. So if something gets cut off or anything like that, now you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, the whole grid shutting down or anything like that from the, from the conventional way that we have it. And so these sodium batteries and energy storage schemes function very well because now if you have renewable energy, and so if you have like your windmills are generating electricity, solar generating electricity, when those are running, you can store that energy. And then when you need that energy, during peak power demand, where you might not necessarily have renewable energy taking place, then you can extract that energy and use it. So they, that, that, that affects the, uh, the uh, grid parity. Well, and Ivan, I wonder if you can maybe talk a little bit more about sort of that idea, um, uh, maybe in the context of, of microgrids. So uh, this is something as an energy reporter here that you know, I'm familiar with the concept of a microgrid, um, but maybe just describe in, in basic terms what a microgrid is and, and how batteries could play a role in propagating those. Sure. So, and, and I guess maybe to answer your question, describe sort of the, the, the three kind of categories that we have. 
Um, so, I mean, on the, on the large scale, what we're used to getting our power from the utility company, uh, the, the utility scale power uh, producers, uh, the big, big box, uh, whether they're um, uh, natural gas plants or, you know, we increasingly phasing out coal plants or uh, nuclear plants or large solar farms, wind farms. Uh, and then on the other end, uh, we have the rooftop solar on my house or a battery in my garage or, uh, or solar on my business, battery at my business. In between those two, uh, from the large scale and the micro, in between the, or the smaller, I will say, um, in between them, we have a micro grid. Um, so it's a combination of uh, a, it's not quite a solar farm um, where you have rows and rows and rows of, of solar panels. Um, but but it's, uh, it's a series of panels that's larger than what you would see uh, on, a, on a home and a uh and it may be coupled with with a battery and supply um a maybe a development or maybe uh, you might have a microgrid at a at a school or a hospital um but it's not it's not the the utility scale size that's you know powering uh tens of thousands of homes and businesses well, and you know, one of the things that really stands out to me as you're talking, Ivan, is that um, I, I think batteries are often thought of as the province of of maybe people who are who are better well off, maybe someone who's an early adopter or a gearhead and and can afford, you know, a, a, a high priced uh, electric vehicle. Um, but you reported uh, on one of, uh, you know, a really great example of the power of this technology. And this was an apartment complex outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, and at this complex, I think it was about 600 units. Every unit had had its own battery, and there were solar panels on the roof of this building. So, so essentially, it was kind of a microgrid, as you're describing. That, that's right. I mean, so so again, we're talking about sort of how the the future of how the grid operates. Uh, that complex uh, had solar panels on the roof of the apartment building, and every single unit had a its own battery. Uh, and the way that the state sort of uh, helped make this work even better for the consumer, because obviously um, people who can't afford to buy their own home, you know, typically are, are the ones uh, renting an apartment. Um, that battery was essentially theirs. As they leased the apartment, they got the full benefit of that battery. And so the way that the way that played out was to say, um, if the grid went down, uh, then I'd still have some power in my apartment. If the grid needed more power, uh, they they have sort of coined this term, a battery swarm, where they collect, harness the, the power from all 600 batteries and send that power to the grid in the same way that uh, we talked about earlier, where um, uh, batteries at homes and businesses helped uh, during the that uh, blackout period uh, last summer here in California. So um, that that is a that is a true microgrid and its ability to do multiple things that the, the electric grid when it was designed uh, a century ago was not designed to do. I mean it was designed to deliver power to us, but not this now two-way relationship 
that rooftop solar and batteries and microgrids have have enabled. Andre, one of the things I know you've looked at is uh, solar panels on on vehicles, uh, and, and again, that being a way that could maybe close some of the gaps here and maybe incentivize people if they're say if they're a renter and and don't have a spot to plug their their EV car into. Uh, well, if there's solar panels on the car, they don't have to worry about that. Um, so maybe just briefly describe some of the work you've done um, there. Sure. Yes. So my area of research is is organic photovoltaics, and so this deals with the area and solar cells on polymer small molecule solar cells and and my group also works on perovskite solar cells uh you know that's a next next generation material solar cell and and most recently we're also starting to work on cad tel uh, solar cells as well so very exciting time for for solar cell technology and so if you can imagine uh for people that have electric vehicles and they're trying to figure out, okay, where are we going to plug into? What are we going to connect to? And then with the deployment that Ivan mentioned uh, with the number of charging stations that are going up. And then of course the questions that come up with that is, okay, you know, will this charging station charge this particular vehicle? Will uh, Tesla with their charging stations be accessible to other vehicles and those sorts of things. Well, you can imagine, having an electric vehicle where you have a solar panel that fits on the, that's conforms to the coating or the contour of the car and not just like a, one of those rigid type of panels where you have like a box that's sitting on top of the car, but something that actually seamlessly um, covers the car. And so now instead of having paint that just protects or makes the car look a certain way, now you have a active surface area that's actually collecting energy. So you can drive your electric vehicle. Then when you park it, it's still collecting energy. And I think that's, that's a very interesting uh, situation because now the car is autonomous or, or can be uh, self-sustaining where you don't have to necessarily plug it in to a, to a grid or to a charging station. So my group is working on those types of solar cells, uh, which are flexible, bendable type of solar cells. Ivan, earlier you were describing um, uh, microgrids and some of the uh, behind-the-meter um, energy storage that people are uh, doing uh, in their homes, um, and you're describing really what what sounds to me like uh, a, maybe a turning point for the grid. I mean, you were saying how the grid was set up a, a century ago to do one thing, and that was to deliver power, but now we have people that are on the grid actually generating their own power. Um, so maybe just sort of sketch out where where this could all go from here. Sure. So, I mean, some of it we're seeing actually in other parts of the world. Um, the ability to, uh, be, because those with solar and, and battery, uh, solar on their rooftops and batteries in their homes, because they have this power, um, it, it gives it, it, the opportunity to turn them into entrepreneurs. We see some of this uh, in Germany, where you have um, some peer-to-peer electricity trading. Um, It's not as complicated as people might would think because in some of our states, we already, we we, uh, can decide who our power provider is. Uh, The utility uh, delivers, but we pick, you know, where, who who the provider technically is. And so um, Germany has taken that to the micro level of uh, where if you were my in my area, I could you know sell you some electricity that I produced uh, from from my system. So I mean, there's the the potential is very broad where you can actually turn 
uh, everyone into a, an electricity entrepreneur. Mm. And Andre, our, our time is really brief here, but just in, in closing, I mean, for you as a researcher, what, what are you seeing as, um, I guess, kind of the, the frontiers for, for batteries going forward? What are, what are things that just excite you in your research? Oh, great. Thanks. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of exciting things. So my group is working on uh, fast, uh, rechargeable uh, scenarios, looking at ways on how you can make batteries charge faster, because of course, it's uh, one effort to, uh, if you haven't let your vehicle to uh, find a charging station, but then there's also that, that idea of you don't want to be sitting around for a couple hours for your battery to charge back up over to 80% capacity. So how do you actually make that battery and where you can charge it up much faster? And so we have some exciting results. We have a uh, manuscript that we're preparing uh, that we're going to publish uh, pretty soon. And so I'm looking forward to that. Another area that batteries that we didn't really talk about is, of course, you can decouple the capacity of batteries. And so you can create a variety of different scenarios called flow batteries. And so flow batteries, you can have electrolytes, analyte, catholyte that's flowing in. And that helps with the, uh, um, you know, with the limitation of batteries because batteries, you're limited to the capacity of the amount of material that you have. Whereas a flow battery, you can decouple that so you can have uh, solutions or storage and you can increase your storage and then just have an energy exchange system in the flow battery. Uh, other areas for batteries, um, my group's done work on lithium air, lithium oxygen batteries, which is eliminating the uh, challenges. So instead of using lithium metal oxide in the cathode, you're actually uh, letting oxygen come in from the atmosphere. And then that's uh, forming like a lithium peroxide or superoxide on your cathode side. So there's a variety of areas um, with that, 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 that I think makes sense. And yeah, so I just think it's, it's a very exciting frontier right now for batteries, flow batteries, and then not just that, but grid storage. So as I mentioned, DC Muse with the decarbonization mm -hmm. of the chemical industry, how do you take those electrons and put those into chemical bonds? You can store that in chemical energy uh, using other systems. You can create ammonia, getting around the Haber-Bosch process, all sorts of interesting things you can do electrochemically. So it's a very interesting frontier uh, right now. I want to say thanks to both of our guests today, Ivan Penn, energy correspondent for the New York Times, and Andre Taylor, associate professor in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at NYU Tandon School of Engineering. Thanks so much to you both. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm Patrick Scahill, in for Lucy Nopithanchel. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Today's show was produced by Carbon Baskoff. Thanks for listening.